You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Rufus Phillips. Rufus Phillips is the author of a book just published this past year entitled Why Vietnam Matters. And he wrote it based on his own some 14 years of deep involvement in Vietnam. And he believes that so much of, of that involvement and what he and others like him learned really is worth passing on today. Rufus graduated from Yale in 1951. And like so many young men, at that time, sought public service. Of course, the troubles in, in Vietnam had started. The Vietnam were on, Viet Minh were on the edge of starting their 20-year drive to take over the country. And Rufus joined the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, shortly thereafterwards, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, which then reassigned him to CIA, which became his early career. Uh, he was in Saigon from 1954 on until he returned to the States, and then in 1962 went back out to uh, Saigon with the Agency for International Development, AID. And so his career off and on for those number of years, and later on advising the Johnson administration and advising Vice President Hubert Humphrey, uh, were years devoted to public service. We're so very happy that you've joined us here today. And I'd like, I'd really like to put the question to you, Rufus, Rufus, right now. Why does Vietnam matter? Vietnam matters because there were, uh, we made a lot of mistakes, and some of which were recognized at the time, some of which were not. And a lot of it had to do with the failure to recognize that these kinds of conflicts, and I include Iraq and Afghanistan in that, are at their heart political conflicts. And therefore, all actions that the U.S. takes, including military, diplomatic, uh, need to be attuned to the fact that 
what is the effect of those actions on the people that we're presumably trying to help? And how does that help their cause, whatever their cause is, so that in the final analysis, we can't win the war, only they can. And we fell for this kind of illusion in Vietnam when we put in troops. The whole approach became by General Westmoreland to win the war and give the country back to the Vietnamese. And when we went into Iraq, it was very much the same. We were going to impose our will on the Iraqi people. We were going to defeat the insurgency that way. In fact, we didn't even recognize there was an insurgency for quite a while. And we were going to impose a, a political system on the Iraqis, and they were going to pick it up, and therefore we could then bring our troops home and everything would be fine. And anybody who's gone through one of those kinds of contests, and that was very true of Vietnam, knows that you can't possibly achieve success with that kind of approach. We've, we've gone through an experience here where <clears throat> we've now been in Iraq for some time, and we reached something of a turning point, and I think it was General Petraeus who led the effort to, <clears throat> as it were, rewrite the manual on, on, on uh, dealing with insurgencies. Do you think that, and I think you make the point in the book that that much of what appears in that manual really are things that were applied in Vietnam. And, and if that's true, and we lost in Vietnam, I mean, that's one way to put it. I realize we lost the support of the American people, which was such a key element of it. But do you feel that we, we finally have gotten on the right track in Iraq today? Uh, yes, I do. Uh... I think that Petraeus is quite unique, uh, not merely for his, his knowledge or his concepts about this kind of contest, but also for his leadership skills. And he did one other thing which was really important in Iraq, and that is that he and Crocker, uh, Ambassador Crocker, became a team together. And neither of them would go see the Prime Minister Maliki alone. They always went together. They had offices across from each other. Uh, Petraeus appreciated the political side of the war, which was mainly Crocker's uh, responsibility, and they worked together as a team. So you had the military tactics, which were counterinsurgency, where the primary objective becomes the protection of the civilian population, and killing the insurgents, and even force protection, becomes secondary. And when you think about this, this is very radical, because normally the way we fight wars, force protection and killing the insurgents are two of the primary goals. Uh, and so this is a complete reversal, in a way, of traditional tactics. Now, it so happens in Vietnam that we did much on the development side early on that had considerable success. But we never got the military side working properly in terms of pacification until General Abrams replaced General Westmoreland. Then his, his primary focus was on protecting the, the civilian population, and everything was keyed to that. So they were actually able to carry out pacification in South Vietnam and pacified almost all the areas of South Vietnam. And, uh, and when I say they, I mean that was the Vietnamese who were carrying the ball, and we were supporting them and helping them. So the emphasis came, changed. And, and so that's one of the lessons, I think, 
that you see in Iraq because when we moved into Baghdad after the surge, Petraeus put small units of Americans with uh, Iraqis, arm, you know, the Iraqi army, in in out in out little posts out in the neighborhoods, and initially it was terrible. I mean, the Americans were losing, having tremendous casualties until they stayed there. They persisted. The population started to turn around. They recruited local self-defense people, and then the thing. Really, the ball really rolled, and so now you you see uh, Baghdad largely pacified. And so, you know, I I think that that we learned how to do this in Vietnam, but then afterwards we just forgot about Vietnam. Everybody wanted to forget about it, so that when uh, Bob Sorley wrote a book called A Better War uh, some years ago, the book was not on the curriculum at West Point. It wasn't on the curriculum at the National War College. He got only one time appearance to talk about it at the National War College because people thought that that's Vietnam, that's passé. But in fact, all these lessons were learned. And the other big lesson was, in the final analysis, only the Vietnamese could win it. And there we were really deficient politically. Uh, we thought that we could just decide who the Vietnamese ought to have as the leadership. And, uh, you know, we went through a succession of coups. Uh, not only did we encourage the first one against Xi'an, but we even encouraged the second one that replaced the original junta. And it was really uh, thoughtless in the way we approached it from a political point of view. We didn't understand the Vietnamese side of the equation at all and how necessary it was for them to try to, to pull together and become unified with some kind of national cause. The other thing we didn't understand was Vietnamese nationalism and what a powerful motive that was. So we had ridiculous things happening like uh, uh, McNamara going out and running around the countryside holding up General Kang's hand and saying, Vietnam, Munam, which in, to Vietnamese was ruptured duck lie down. In the meantime, the head of, of the uh, the National Liberation Front, the Viet Cong, was, was delighted. He said, McNamara just did all our work for us. You know, we didn't have to pro propagandize that, that General uh, Kine is, is a puppet. And we didn't understand that. We didn't understand that part of the equation at all. I, you make another point in your book, which I think would be somewhat applicable today as well, and that is the not just underestimating the North Vietnamese, the, the nationalist fervor, and and not giving the South Vietnamese the, the, the wherewithal completely to do what they needed to do, in other words, trying to do it ourselves, but losing American support. In other words, one can still hear from folks like yourself that Vietnam need not have been a lost war that Tet was not a great victory, certainly, for the Viet Cong, but that American support began to slip away, both in the media and at the political level. And I think uh, one of the reasons for that, of course not the only reason, I think the draft and the way that was handled contributed to a lot of dissent, but when you saw on television uh, Vietnamese children running down a road, being burnt by napalm, uh, you got the notion back here that 
we were supposed to be over there helping the Vietnamese defend themselves. Instead, we seemed to be killing them. And this created a, 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 a tremendously bad impression. And it was a wrong kind of tactic. We shouldn't have been doing that. We employed very massive firepower. We didn't distinguish between civilians and Viet Cong. And we weren't doing counterinsurgency. We were doing conventional military operations with horrific effect. So I think that contributed to a lot of the malaise back home, and, and I can understand why. And one of the things that bothers me right now about uh, Afghanistan, understanding Petraeus, although uh, in the post as, uh, as the head of CENTCOM, is still not in control of what's going on over there. We're doing the same kind of thing in Afghanistan, and we're alienating people. Now, you know, it hadn't gotten to the American public yet, but the, the, the tactics that we're still using over there are not the tactics that are going to win in Afghanistan. Is there a sense in which uh, <clears throat> we still, as a nation, are, are looking at another country like Afghanistan and having the goal of of somehow introducing our form of democracy or whatever you may call it, and then that's winning the war. In other words, are we, are we not taking a limited enough goal as what we really should be doing? Are we overreaching? Well, in the case of Afghanistan, I think it was really a case of neglect. Uh, once we decided to go into Iraq, we just didn't focus on Afghanistan. I have been told that the American embassy there had instructions to going back to being a regular embassy. So they didn't understand that you chased the Taliban out, but the Taliban were going to come back in. Same thing happened in South Vietnam. In 1956, uh, we turned everything over really to the regular U.S. agencies. The decision was made to train the Vietnamese Army to uh, prevent an invasion across the 17th parallel. So they were all uh, reorganized into corps and divisions, and that was their training. They were pulled out of any territorial responsibility, which meant population security in the rural areas. Supposedly, there was going to be a civil guard to fill in, but that was poorly trained. It was done by Michigan State University, who hired a bunch of city policemen in the U.S. that had no idea of the kind of constabulary that was really needed in the countryside. In the meantime, USOM decided, the USAID decided, program decided that the main emphasis had to be on focusing on the cities and building up light industry. And, and you could not get them, and they refused to become involved in any kind of rural development program. So, you know, I see parallels there. You know, in, in Afghanistan, we decided we'd won the war. We became preoccupied by Iraq, but basically we just said, you know, we won the war, goodbye. And you would have thought that, that we have drawn some lessons going back to the period in which we were financing and supporting the Mujahideen. And then afterwards, after the Russians were chased out, we said, forget about Afghanistan and look what we got. So now, you know, we got a lot of ground to make up. And I don't think it's a question of our trying to, to transfer democracy. I think it's more of an effort to try to help 
the, the Afghan government in a substantial way establish security. And, and uh, sure, there are a lot of problems with the current government, but some of that comes from neglect, frankly. And they're probably going to have to, we're going to have to push for reform uh, in the way the government operates, but it's not us applying some formula on trying to make them conform to our idea of democracy. I think that's a, uh, that's a wrong sort of uh, parallel that sometimes people draw. You know, I, 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 I think your comments here today give our listeners some insight as to what you offer uh, in the book that you've done, Why Vietnam Matters. So I, I hope that it intrigues them enough to, to look deeper at that. But I really can't end, end the session without asking you to comment on one of the most legendary figures in American intelligence, and that's Edward Lansdale. He was a unique uh, individual. I've never seen, never met anybody like him. Uh, he uh, had a gift for developing unusual ideas that had some applicability to uh, situations. For example, uh, in addition to an extraordinary personality and ability to communicate with agents, Asians, and I think probably almost anybody that was almost legendary. I mean, if you can imagine, he goes up and he sees Trinmente, who's this guerrilla leader up in this mountain hideout who's been fighting both the French and the and the uh, the the sex or or and the uh, and the the Viet Minh, the communists. And in one day, just talking to him through an interpreter, he establishes such a strong personal relationship that Trinmente trusts him above all other uh, Vietnamese, and he becomes the go-between between Trinmente and President Xiong. And so he had that kind of talent. Uh, and, and, and in terms of ideas, uh, some of his ideas, for example, were not the conventional one. One of them happened to be something called Operation Brotherhood, which was a, a whole group of medical teams that came in from the Philippines. It was run by the international JCs. There was some covert support behind it. But these, these doctors worked miracles in Vietnam in terms of, of uh, helping the Vietnamese people. So they became an integral part of some of our pacification operations. Uh, he had created also something jointly with uh, President McSaisai in the Philippines called the Freedom Company, which allowed uh, Filipinos who had experience in, in, in psychological warfare and pacification to come over and, and work as advisors for the Vietnamese during some of the most critical days. And so uh, and he, he was a very deceptively kind of casual person. I remember coming in and, and meeting him for the first time. I wanted to know what my assignment was, and I saluted him. That was the last time I ever saluted him. <laughs> and he said, I want you to do something with the Psy War people in the Vietnamese Army. And I said, I don't know anything about Psy War. And he reached up on the shelf, pulled out a book by Paul Leinbarger and tossed it to me and said, here, read this. And he just turned me loose. And uh, so I got to know the Vietnamese, and that's how I got into the whole pacification thing. And, uh, 
and you know he just he 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 if he felt that you could handle the job he didn't mind giving you all the responsibility in the world and uh so uh, he was really a very unique individual i don't i've never seen anybody like him before or since uh, I, let me just stay with that for a moment when when you say you've never seen anyone like him i mean what was the the what was the quality that enabled him to go up and talk to the to the one guerrilla leader for a day? I mean, was it was there some intensity in his conversation? Was he an intense person? Was he flamboyant? What was it that that was that was so different no, that, he, that he made well, this well? He had impression? a flamboyant uh, uh, reputation, of course, because of some of the stuff had gone on in the Philippines and sure. Then he uh, became very key in terms of shaping U.S. policy towards Zim at a very crucial moment when uh, General Collins had come back and it almost persuaded Eisenhower to, to, to abandon Zim. This was when the war in Saigon had started. And Collins wanted uh, the opponents, who were basically the religious sect plus the gangster sect, to get together in some combined combine uh, force and get into the government, which would have been disaster. And so Lansdale, on his say-so alone, really turned around U.S. policy. And the guy was willing to risk his neck for what he thought was right. And, uh, you know, that sort of impressed the Vietnamese because they felt that he was laying things on the line with them, and he didn't give a damn about his career. And so... You know, some of us viewed this as not being a team player and recklessness. Uh, hell, it was just pure conviction on his part, and he, he was able to communicate but that. Is that what carried? In other words, was there – I'm sort of looking for the source of his clout here. I mean, I can see a person of great conviction uh, having an extraordinary impact. But was there other – Well, course, he had, had the experience in the Philippines. from the fact – yeah, of his success in the Philippines, working mm -hmm. his with, record, uh, yeah, his record. But also, uh, you have to remember in in, in 1954, after Geneva, uh, the American, I mean, from President Eisenhower on down, were were really in despair. There was a lot of talk about drowning, abandoning Vietnam and drawing the line further west. And so Lansdale was sent out there with a really unique mission, which was. Do the magic that you did in the Philippines, essentially save South Vietnam, which is about as broad a charter as you could imagine. So he just played within those uh, boundaries and somehow managed to, to be operationally so deft that he dodged the bureaucracy. Uh, he got some confidence from the American ambassador there, which allowed him to operate. But he had a tremendous conflict with – we had another station there, so we really had two CIA stations operating. But he would do other things, like the first time he met Zim, he gave Zim a political plan. And Zim was very intrigued by it, and this became the basis for their relationship. Uh, and, you know, that, that was the kind of guy he was. He, he would he would thrive in, in our I mean as a political he would advisor. I mean, this in was any instinctive kind with him. of revolutionary yeah. unglued yeah. situation. Yes, <laughs> he, he would thrive in Afghanistan right now. Did you if he had a charter? Did you stay in touch with him after you you left in '63? Oh yeah. In fact, uh, he went back out 
uh, in the embassy under Lodge in 65, and even though I was running a private business, uh, I uh, became a member of the team temporarily. I, I was a consultant to state, and so I'd go out for a month every year and, and help the team, and then I was sort of their informal backstop back here. Uh, so I became very much involved in what he was trying to do then. The unfortunate thing was that by that time we had huge bureaucracies out there, and Lodge didn't back him. In other words, he, he got Lodge to give him a charter to do pacification with some political overtones. And then Lodge was such an egomaniac in a way that he wanted to do the political thing himself. He still thought he knew everything there was to know about Vietnam. And that limited uh, very much what Lansdale could do, unfortunately. So that was that mission basically was not successful. I, I'm pleased to see uh, from uh, a little bit of your biography here that you have been invited to speak in any number of fora, military affairs fora and elsewhere. Do you, uh, do you find receptivity for the remarks that you've made very much along the lines with what you're saying this afternoon? Yes, I do. Uh, the questions have been very good, uh, and uh, I think people get the message that I'm trying to put across. And the most gratifying thing to me have been letters from guys who served in Vietnam after I was there, who were in cords out in the countryside, who say things like, this is the real story. And, uh, you know, they're looking at it through their eyes and remembering their experiences on the ground. And so my feeling is that I, if I'm true to them, then I'm true to what happened. Well, I, I notice also that uh, when you left in 55, you received the, in, the agency's uh, Intelligence Medal of Merit, and I think you've re received other awards as well. I want to thank you very much for coming today, and I would like to end by thanking you for your service to the country, which has been quite extraordinary. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.